I think one important thing is that you're also able to fire people. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Thomas, a warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for hosting me. You are a serial internet entrepreneur, a business angel, and also the president of the Swiss ICT Investor Club, or SIGTIC in short. Before you joined the startup world, you actually pursued an academic career, sort of. You earned your PhD in computer science from ETH in Zurich. And I was just wondering, why didn't you pursue that path further and really focused on the academic career that you already built back in the days? When you do a PhD, you have two options. You could go into becoming a professor or you could go into industry. And I was always much more interested in applied research than just in pure theory-based research. Mm -hmm. And for me, I really wanted to do something which is concrete, which has an impact. And that, for me, was clear the industry path. That's why I went to industry and had my first job there. And uh, what was that first job that you had there after the, the academic career? Basically, while I was doing my PhD, I got a job offer from Google and I signed it before I was finished. But uh, they gave me the grace period to first finish up and then join the next day. So it took me another eight months to finish the PhD. And then the next day I was in Silicon Valley in Mountain View at the headquarters of Google. And there I had three months of bootcamp training. And then I came back to Zurich, which was a tiny office with like 40 people at the time. Back in days, that's like unimaginable these days because Google is so big in Zurich. But you basically were part of the early days here in, in Switzerland. And I can imagine that, you know, Google is sort of the, the perfect mix between what you learned or what you did at, at ETH and also the entrepreneurial world. So how was your time at Google? You really had this whole growth that you went through with Google in Switzerland. How was your experience at Google? What did you take away from that time? I think I was really lucky with the timing. In 2006, when I joined, there were a very small office, less than 60 people. And I had a cybersecurity background and a computer science background. And I was put in charge to build up a new team in cybersecurity, which for me was a great challenge. We also had to solve a lot of big data problems and Google had a lot of data, of course. Mm -hmm. And because we were doing this from Zurich, far away from, from California, we had a lot of trust we build up and really uh, go for a big mission. Got it. And then I can imagine that there are also certain challenges that you face along that way. Um, what were some of the challenges by you know, having Google in Switzerland growing so rapidly? What were the challenges that you had in your daily business life there? I mean, talking about growth in Zurich, the, the journey for me was from about 40 people in 2006 to 1,400 seven years later mm -hmm. at a time when I left 2013. That's and amazing. I mean, ramping up a company that fast means you build lots of new structures, uh, you group the teams, you put in additional management layers, uh, the missions become much bigger. And all of these things can be little disruptions because you change the culture while you grow the company. And for me, I was the first employee in a completely new team. Then first I had to hire my team before I got to the work. <laughs> So right. then they sent me into a course to learn how to hire people, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> so I did lots and lots, more than 100 interviews in the first four years just to hire my team, basically. That it was sounds, a great experience, yeah. That sounds like a steep learning curve that you went through there to really, you know, onboard these skills also, I guess. 
I did not expect to uh, be put in charge of hiring when I joined them. <laughs> I expected to do uh, computer science and programming and big data analytics, machine learning. Um, I did that as well because I, I was in, uh, responsible for all the technology decisions that the team did. And I was also still part-time programming. Nice. And then, you know, with all this, this scale-up, the American-style uh, scale-up sort of, um, I can imagine that you also took away a few learnings there that you can then apply to the startup world that you later joined uh, with becoming also an angel investor. So what was it like in, in terms of scaling up and really growing a company that stuck with you that Swiss companies might not do the same way as Google does it? I mean, I just saw it by example. And one thing that they did is, for example, at the beginning, they only hired senior people, mm -hmm. which really knew how to deliver a project. And only later, they would add more junior people. Okay. Uh, that was one thing, which was a great privilege to me because most people around me, I could learn from them because they were all experts and specialists. At the, a different point is the culture of the company is very hard to keep it if so many new people move in with different backgrounds. And for that, they actually had specific courses to teach the new employees uh, what the culture should be. Mm -hmm. And also they had a mentee program, which I was part of, uh, to really do hand-holding of the new people such that they would feel at home much faster. But preserving a company culture in rapid growth is very tricky. Is there like any additional tip that you could give also from your startup experience to how to make that culture while growing rapidly still stick and, and work? I think one important thing is that you're also able to fire people. If people are a misfit because of their personality or just because it doesn't work out, mm -hmm. you should not keep those people too long in a team because they could easily destroy the whole team um, culture and team spirit. It's always hard if you need to hire people, if you at the same time also fire some people. Mm -hmm. And it's not very European, I have to say, that people will have to leave the team. But if you don't do that, it's much harder to build a great culture and, and really make sure that the teams are functional. Absolutely. Yeah, That's I, a lesson I learned, uh, which I wasn't used to that. You would easily just six months after somebody joins, you would fire him again. For me, it was very new. But in the end, I think um, if you want to build great teams, that's a necessity to be very transparent about performance, about whether it's a team fit or not, mm -hmm. and then take measures. Absolutely. And then after 70 years, you also decided to leave Google. What were the reasons where you said, okay, um, seven years, that's enough. I do something else. A lot of my coworkers still don't understand why I left. <laughs> uh, because they say it's a very interesting place to work. For me, there were several reasons. One is uh, there was a culture shift within Google as they became a large company with more than a thousand people. Um, they had many more managers than, than engineers, I would say, mm -hmm. in a sense that uh, the, the projects were driven by managers, certainly not by engineers anymore. For me, it was, it was vital that I, as an engineer, could uh, start a new project, have a direct impact, and not just take over somebody else's project. And that was less and less possible over time. On, on, a, on a, second, a second reason for, for leaving Google was that I didn't like to work in a very large corporate. Uh, I, like, I like the family group kind of work. So people know each other. They all know the same mission. Uh, you know what they do. You really like it's like a family. And that started to break apart into very separate teams. They wouldn't even talk to each other anymore unless they had to. And I preferred the family group of um, company life much more. And I can imagine that this family group is then also one reason that led you to the startup world where you're working as a family on a, on a big problem, basically. 
you switched to the startup world. You, you started Spontax, for example, but also had other ventures that you were involved, like uh, with Contavista that we're going to talk about a bit more in detail, but also uh, Frontify, for example. So I wonder where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from? Why did you then decide to not go to another corporate after Google and just say, hey, I really want to go and focus uh, on the startup world and building companies? So how do you learn about startups? And in my case, it was by accident, I have to say. Some young entrepreneurs, uh, the founders of um, Spontex, they approached me and said, hey, we know you from before, and uh, why don't you give us some money because we really need it for building our startup? And I said, I mean, I know two of the three founders quite well, and I believe that they can deliver. And so I basically overnight became an angel investor. Uh, it wasn't really planned, but it just, uh, I just liked the idea, I liked the team, and I, I think that uh, they really deserve to, to make the idea real. And it turned out very well um, after the, the incorporation of the, the Swiss uh, company. Uh, basically, it took less than two years to sell it to um, Scout24 in Germany. So then some of the team members had to relocate to Munich. And me as an investor just got uh, the money back plus some more. And this was my first investment, but I had very little idea of what it means to be an investor. I just wanted to help entrepreneurs mm -hmm. uh, by supporting them uh, with whatever I could. Great. And how much money did you invest in, in your first investment there? Uh, I mean, the numbers were never disclosed because the acquiring party didn't want to talk about numbers. Okay. Uh, but it was quite a sizable investment for me. Uh, it was more than my bonus at Google. Okay, got it. <laughs> so for me, it was sizable. Um, in the end, yeah, it was, was really great because uh, the first punch was a lucky punch. Mm -hmm. And after that, I started to more systematically scout for startups. And I also formed a, a small group together with uh, three other angel investors, um, which uh, had the name of Seeders or Exceed Investors. Mm -hmm. uh, we basically were scouting for startups. We gave an interview in Bilanz uh, in a magazine for uh, financial affairs in Switzerland. And suddenly a lot of deal flow, more than 100 startups were sending us pitch decks. Wow. And then we said, okay, now we have to do something. So we picked two of them and one of them was Frontify, the other one was Contavista. Great. And then it was about coming real, like now we have to give the money and uh, really like incorporate with them because mm -hmm. they were so early, they didn't have a company yet. Uh, then for me, it was the question, do we actually have the time to do that if I still work full time at Google? Mm -hmm. And then I had to decide what's my next step. Yeah. And then you basically took the leap and said, OK, I'm going to focus on that. And that's my new job, right? I mean, originally I had planned to do this as a side thing because we had three other angel investors, which hopefully would have time. But then two of them got a baby and the third one uh, just had uh, the rest of his exit. And then he wanted to do world travel. And then it was just kind of me sticking around. <laughs> I said, OK, now let's do it because uh, I would want to try it. And then I went to my boss and said, look, um, I want to do startups, so I want to quit. And then the boss said, no, you can't quit. We need you. <laughs> and I said, OK, I'm going to quit anyway. And then he said, OK, you can go for one year and then if you still regret and want to come back we do as if you never left okay so you get your stock program everything back and so I had one year to test it out which was like a very very kind of my boss that's a pretty cool setup it, but that's like that was the suggestion of your boss not your own idea it was to my it. boss suggestion because he wanted me back nice yeah and so I guess with that setup, you were also able to minimize the risk to a certain degree because you could just say, if it doesn't work out, I can always go I knew back. I had the job again a right. year later if I wanted it. I was not paid in the year. I was um, outside of Google, sure. of course, uh, but I could at any time go back, yes. But I can also imagine, um, you know, financial-wise, um, you probably took a different direction there because Google is well known for paying good salaries and 
being an angel investor where you actually invest your own money, but there's no like direct money coming in. How did you handle that? Were there any fears that you had, how you finance your daily life or how did you do that? I mean, of course, you have to do some calculations on how long you can live without the proper salary. At the same time, I was not just an investor. Um, I incorporated uh, Frontify and Contavista, plus I also incorporated a third startup where I was operational in a CTO role, which I had a salary, but not a, not a big one. Okay. And then uh, also did some consulting on the side. So I had some base income, not a lot, not as much as with Google. Sure. But I didn't have to cover all the expenses. So yeah. it was an, a mix of a little bit of income plus a lot of uh, investor work. Yeah. And you also built a big upside basically with your investments on the other hand, right? I, it was also much more fun to work with young, inspired entrepreneurs. And I really like tried to make, his, make this big. Uh, for me, it was a, a big bet, and I knew it was a, a medium to long term bet. So mm -hmm. I had to do this for several years before I would see whether it works out or not. Right. And at the beginning, you never know, you just have a gut feel. The True. gut feel was very good. I liked the people, I liked the idea, and I saw I could make a contribution as well on my side, so I could help them you know, get there faster and mm -hmm. de risk it early. Before we talk about the specific case of Contavista, I also want to know more about what happened after this one year period. What did you tell Google? What happened? What was like your learning after this one year uh, period where you still could have gone back to Google but didn't decide to do so? So the, the first year was very intense. I left in March and uh, then the next month we started to incorporate companies. And uh, to me, I suddenly forgot that I had worked at Google. I didn't even notice <laughs> when the year was over. I was wow. just like so busy with uh, these three startups which we were bootstrapping, one of which I was the, um, the CTO of uh, with Conto Vista, I was in the board. Uh, at the same time, I was looking at additional investments. Uh, I was super busy with all the many things that I completely forgot that the year was over. And the things also were turning out quite well, so uh, we could get funding, we could hire more people, and it was just growing in all dimensions. So you were basically just too busy to even think about that because I mean, there was always... I sent me an email like, by the way, the year is over, why didn't you come back? And I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> I completely forgot about <laughs> that maybe I should have told him. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, I invited me back to lunch, but I said, look, basically, I'm so happy with the new thing. Uh, currently, it's not good timing to go back to my other job. Makes sense. So yeah, let's talk about Contavista. Um, I think one of your great flagship cases, if I can call it that way. Um, Contavista offers services for financial institutions and also consumers based on financial data, data analysis, basically. Maybe you can talk a bit more about the specific problem that you solved there, because there was you know, more data available, but the banks didn't really know how to handle it and show it to, to their customers and to themselves. So what was the specific problem that you actually solved with Contavista? So most customers, end of the month, they get the paper printout or a PDF, which states all the transactions, but this is like dead data. You cannot analyze it. You don't really see the trends. Uh, you cannot use it for optimizing your budget. You won't even find the right transactions for your tax uh, declaration. Mm -hmm. it's, it's data basically in a forum, which is very hard to process. Now, Contavista said this data is actually available electronically. And if you would put in the additional intelligence and data enrichment into the data, we could make the data very meaningful for every bank client, whether it's a private person or a company. Mm -hmm. uh, this is called personal finance management for private people um, or, or for companies, basically it helps them optimize the cash flow. So then their vision was to build something within the existing e-banking system uh, to make the, the customers of the bank more aware how they spent the money and how they could optimize that. 
and give them like a forecast on how much money is still on the bank in December when you want to buy nice presents or maybe go on holidays. Right. So it helps with financial planning and gives you financial insights. Mm -hmm. And I remember that even back then, but also today still, it's, this is a pretty hot topic uh, in, in, in banks and the financial industry in general. So I was also wondering, why did you decide that the timing was right when you started Contavista? Why was the timing the, the right timing to get started with that company, that idea? I mean, the banks knew that they had to reinvent themselves to become more digital. Um, the customers became, became more demanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing like quantified self, where everybody wants to measure everything about their lives, not just the, the fitness part, but like everything. Yep. Of course, you want to also have insights into your financials. And for us, it was clear there's a trend. People want the data to be useful. They want to get more digital services. They want to get insights. And the future, generally, the banks will not be the counter, not the physical meetings. It will be um, a virtual service. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why we saw the trend of the industry goes towards more digital banks. And now also with the cell phones, you could have a bank on a cell phone. Most of the big banks didn't even care about that, really. I mean, they had some kind of banking, but it wouldn't really give you extra benefits. Some banks later learned that you should be the primary channel, not the secondary channel. You have it mobile and everywhere and whenever you need it, even on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And now we come to this, this trend was obvious. We also saw it in the US with Mint.com. Uh, they had already built um, personal finance management and uh, people really liked it because it gave them better control over the financials. So we saw the trend was coming to Europe and uh, we saw it's quite an effort to build the system because the banks, they didn't move very fast, uh, but they all knew they had to. Now, and you were basically there to fill that need, to fill that gap. Yes, we wanted to be early to have a really good solution uh, which the banks could use. But at the very beginning, to be honest, uh, the team said they want to do it directly to the consumers mm -hmm. through a portal where they would basically get the bank's data with all transactions into their portal and then take over the digital channel and provide a better financial um, comprehensive service than the banks could. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we, we told to the founders it's not a very good idea to be an enemy of the banks, especially not in Switzerland, where there's very specifics on the, who has the power and who makes the rules. Yeah. And if you're tiny fintech and you're against the banks, it's very hard to later collaborate with them. And so we figured instead of doing a business-to-consumer approach, we would start with a business-to-business approach and sell the solution to the banks and basically become the friends of the banks. And we would then monetize on their existing customers and their existing infrastructure by just building the very core of the system. That's much cheaper than uh, really like going directly to the consumer. And how do you make that decision to pivot from B2C to B2B? Was that mainly driven by you as an investor or how, like, how was the team involved there? Because if they wanted to go B2C and you say, no, we actually should go B2B, you need to make a decision at a certain point in time, right? And basically the team already approached us almost a year before they came with Contavis. They had a different idea. They wanted to measure the stock sentiment. Uh, by, by looking at how people talk about stocks. And then we said, it's an amazing team, but a terrible idea for monetization. Yeah. Then he came back with Contavista with this business-to-consumer model where they wanted to really give insights of actual transactions. And it was not just me, we were three angel investors. And um, then we had this session about how is the go-to-market strategy, how much money we need for the marketing of the business-to-consumer portal, how do we build a brand? It's very expensive in Switzerland, building right. a brand. And then we said, if we did B2B, it's much cheaper from a marketing perspective. Uh, we are much faster to market. And once we have one or two banks, we have already uh, more than a million customers if we have the right banks. Mm -hmm. And then we said, 
it's so much cheaper and so much faster and less risk. So why don't we do the B2B thing? So together in the end, we arrived at the conclusion that this is the better start model here uh, than, than really trying to go B2C from the beginning. Got it. And how did the business model shift from shifting from B2C to B2B? What it was, was the... never actually really built as B2C in the end because okay. we decided that just a little bit before incorporation that we would really do first three years only B2B and maybe later we decide. Okay. And how do you actually earn money with Contavista? Were the banks paying you a fee to use your technology or how did that work? It's a classical white label software as a service thing. Um, so basically we sell the software to the banks. They can run part on, on their systems. Mm -hmm. Other part of the system uh, which enriches data um, runs outside of the banks because it's uh, useful for multiple banks. Yeah. And then they pay a license fee uh, depending on how large uh, the user base is. Got it. Another thing that you mentioned was Mint before in the, in the US. Um, I also know that in the US, it's much easier to connect to banks because they have a more open API in Switzerland that still until today barely exists. So I can imagine that you also had to solve a, quite a technical challenge to really get access to the, to the bank data of the, of the clients. How do you solve that challenge? Yes, that's true. I mean, in Europe, there was a standard uh, established where banks have to be compatible with an application programming interface where we have a standard to how to get the data. Mm -hmm. uh, Switzerland is not part of that group. They don't need to implement it and they also don't want to implement it. Um, so at, at that time, you had to basically look at what is the, the software that they run, the so-called core banking system. And luckily, uh, there are two big players. Uh, one is Finova and one is Avalok. And if you implement the interfaces of these core banking systems, which are proprietary, then basically you can extract data. And we had one advantage that the two founders, uh, Gianreta Porto and Nicola Cipella, they have worked as consultants to implement um, software on top of these APIs. So they knew exactly how Vinova and Avalor core banking systems uh, worked. And they knew that they could get the data out, out of these uh, containers, these, these systems. Awesome. So they had specific knowledge to, to apply that. Yeah, they knew exactly how to get the data. Perfect. We know interruptions are rude, so we'll make it quick. The more positive ratings we have, the more people we can reach. So if you want to hear more from the Swisspreneur team, give our show a rating on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute. And then another challenge that you solve, especially in, in you know, a, a pretty traditional industry, is how do you build trust and also confidence, especially as a startup? So I can imagine selling to banks, um, they probably ask, what guarantees do we have? How do we make sure that you are still here in 10 years? I think you told me in the prep call. Mm -hmm. um, how do you build that trust and also earn the trust from the banks that they really wanted to work with a startup and actually made a contract with you and bought the, the software, the technology from you? I mean, if you look at the banks, their number one thing is they need to reduce the risk. If they want to lend money, they look at all the possibilities, what could go wrong before they decide if they give you money or not. Right. Now, if you're a young startup, you have like less than 10 people working there. You have very little funding because only three crazy angel investors gave you a little <laughs> bit of money. But you have a great vision, but you have no track record. You can't even prove that the system works reliably, that you will be still there in five years from now. Uh, you can't even prove that it's really secure enough for a banking environment because no banks is using it at a time. Mm -hmm. And then, so we woke up to the first few banks and then uh, they all liked the idea, but said, you know, once you have a few banks, you can come back. Give us the reference customers first and then we can yeah. talk serious business. 
And they also had lots of concerns about uh, whether the system is really scalable or secure, or whether privacy um, controls are built into it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they demanded more from us than they had done for their own system, I felt. Uh, then we said, okay, how can we build up trust? So we need to have some, some big shots, which could lose something if it doesn't work. And uh, where would you find these people? We said, look, we need to have trust that the, the vendor of the core banking system likes it. So we, we went to Avalok and Finova and we found two executive members of these two companies which were joining our advisory board. And then we went to the country manager of MasterCard Switzerland from the credit card industry, which was also an important player because we also were processing credit card data, mm-hmm. not just bank transactions. And then suddenly we had a very reputable advisory board. We also added a few more people like lawyers and others. Uh, and suddenly those people all said, this solution is amazing. Actually, it works with my core banking system and with my credit card data. And I really find it amazing what they do. And then suddenly the banks couldn't say, look, it sounds good, but maybe it's not. Said, no, actually, it is good because those three people which can lose their career if it doesn't work, right. they say it's good. And so thanks to this really reputable advisory board, suddenly banks will take us serious. So it was easier to convince the advisors first and then the banks, but still you had to convince someone. So how did you convince and probably also incentivize the advisors? Were they also becoming shareholders or investors afterwards? Or how did you handle that? So, I mean, being an advisor and being a a shareholder sometimes has some conflict of interest, but of course you want to share the upside. So what you can do is if if certain targets are reached, uh, you can give them some form of um, upside participation, Uh, normally not with voting rights, uh, because otherwise you have a strong conflict of interest. If you're advising and you can also vote, then you're on both sides. Right. Uh, That shouldn't be mixed in in the best case. Uh, so, so some of them uh, said we do it for free because they don't want to have um, to justify that they suddenly um, do something with startups that closely because some of the big corporates they don't want people to invest in startups uh, for policy or compliance reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, for others, we had an incentive program which basically was um, based on a, on a program where once the, the business case really works out, they would get the cash compensation. Got it. But they had to help us. Of course, yeah. And then you were all in the same boat, basically, uh, rowing in the same direction. Exactly. So the better they delivered, the more they would participate. Yes. Great. You know, building a startup, usually you also face some opponents. As we said before, the, the hot topic of personal finance also attracted other companies. And I think when you started, there were two other companies in the same field, uh, one from Kerologix and one from NZZ. Can we talk a bit more about uh, these competitors, what they did differently than yours, and how you actually then survived them? So it's quite funny. In 2013, we incorporated, and just uh, three months later, um, actually it was Creologic and Anstead together, which incorporated a company called Qantas, mm-hmm. and they put in a couple million, and they also had uh, the marketing manager, which they hired from uh, Ringier and Oxl Springer. So they're like a really experienced person, Plus, they licensed the personal finance uh, software from abroad to just basically adopt it to Swiss standards and they would just be ready like the next day. So we were a little bit scared that they basically tried to copycat us, but they they went down the the business-to-consumer road and not the business-to-business road. So at that time, they didn't know how we would go to market, but they knew that uh, we were out there. And apparently, they also liked the idea that doing personal finance um, at scale would be a good thing. And with NZZ, they had amazing news channels. Uh, They could really build up reputation and uh, reach uh, the consumers. And with Creologic, they had a stock-quoted company which knew everything about Mm multi-banking. So it looked like there's a super strong um, competitor out there. For us, it was... um, 
incentivizing us to, to do it even faster. So we wanted to launch in the first 18 months, which we eventually did with the first bank. We went live in 18 months nice. with the Schweizer Kantonalbank. Uh, was, uh, like we were really fighting that we would deliver a working product as soon as possible. Uh, because we knew maybe one day they also change the business to business and then we need to have the banks with us, not that they would then suddenly be lost. Mm -hmm. uh, so for us, it gave us a big push, but it also showed that there's a real market. If you're in a market, there's no competition, something is wrong. But they actually had a, a, a search competitor, uh, maybe it was a search company in the same field, uh, which was uh, Numbers from Central Way. And they, they collected 130 million of funding in four years from 2013 to 2017. Uh, they built a huge team. Um, some probably said like close to 100 people. Uh, don't know what what was headcount, what was FTS, but it sounded like they had amazing firing power. Mm -hmm. uh, but funny for them, they also went down the, the business to consumer road, and they found out that if they're working against the banks, that um, they cannot continue. That's why they left Switzerland in the end, just uh, launched in Germany. Got but it. all three of them basically had a very good basis to become successful. But eventually they, they then didn't. What was the reason beside the, the B2C uh, choice? Were there any other reasons that you could see why it didn't work out? It's always hard to say why it doesn't work out for the competition. I mean, why it worked out for Contavista is that they really made it such that every customer became super happy. And then the new customers would basically give a call to the old customer, which said, look, it's amazing. Like we treat their account in Albank. It took them 14 days to deploy the solution into a productive environment. So after 14 days, everything was working. Wow. And they could use the real data uh, for the first customers to show that it connects to the real uh, system in the backend and shows the, the interesting insights. Yeah. And of course, if you do such a good job, and then also if there's support questions or a bug fixing, you're really quick. Uh, then, then they will tell others. What didn't work out for the competition, maybe it was just uh, hard to convince the people to give them their banking data. Some people might hesitate to um, give logins to e-banking uh, e systems and extract the data, give it to a third-party portal where you don't really know what might happen. And that could be an issue. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I don't really know what, their, what, what the key reasons were, but in the end, maybe the, the market just wasn't ready to pay for that for a B2C service because everything else was almost for free. Mm -hmm. And with business to business, you could of course charge because it's a new service by the bank and they know it costs because they need it in the future. And if it doesn't cost, it might not, not survive. So even we have had one case where one of the competitors uh, offered for free a business to business solution uh, to a bank. And we were offering at the same time what we had the price tag and the bank decided for us because they wouldn't believe that the others would survive with the free model. <laughs> and so, yeah. Quality is more important than, than other things. That, that's an interesting statement. So, so the, the free model was not chosen because of, again, the, the trust or the reputation where they thought that this will not work. Yeah, and also because the others had a competing model where they would try to steal the data from the bank and get a digital okay. channel for the customer also. That's yeah. another issue. And, and then just being free was not, would not compensate for additional risks. Yeah, got it. And how did you, as a, as a founding team, then handle the competition? You, know, you have a well, very well-known media company, the NZZ Group. You have a, a well-funded startup with over 100 million uh, funding. How did you, you know, cope with that also certain pressure, I can imagine, where you suddenly see, hey, they are super strong, super well-known. They have a huge leverage that they can build with their own media company or they have so much investment. How did you handle that? Were there any you know, doubts or also fears uh, along that process when you see what the competition is doing? 
I mean, you definitely want to watch what's going on. And for us, uh, focus was most important. Mm -hmm. So we said we really need to prioritize which of the banks we need to win and redo everything. We can win them as fast as possible. Uh, for example, Zürcher Kantonalbank was one of really um, was of big importance to us. We yeah. knew if we would lose it to somebody else, it will be hard because it's like a flagship customer. Mm -hmm. That's why we were very intensely um, going into discussions with all our most favorite customers and then do everything, including activating people uh, from, from further out the, the advisory board to really try to, to win those deals. So for us, it was really focused. Uh, we have little resources. We need to make sure we spend them on the, on the most uh, relevant things. And uh, for the competition, we're just watching them. And of course, we ask also when we had chats with the banks, whether they already were talking with these and what they think about them, what they think about us. And uh, also, so we learned a little bit on how, how they're moving into the market and whether banks like them or hate them or whatever, find something weird. And so you can also learn from how people perceive the competition, even if it's your customers that you ask. True. And especially those which already had as customers, they will tell us everything about the others, which was very nice. Mm -hmm. So you had some insights on how they were moving. Great. And then let's fast forward a bit to 2017, when you actually sold Contavista to Aduno. Can you talk a bit more about how that deal happened and who actually made the first contact and how the, the actual sale went down? So the sale was four and a half years after the incorporation of the company, which was quite fast, I would say. Absolutely. The company had about 20 employees at the time and nine paying customers and another like 10 or so in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So it was still very young. Um, it was sold to the Aduna Group, which was also the Series A investor. So we knew the company, they invested about one and a half years before. Uh, in, in, the, in the first round after the angel investments took place. And uh, at that time, it was a very good fit because they were doing data analytics. They had um, collaboration with credit card um, processors, with Viseca, uh, which was delivering data to our system. Their shareholders were our customers. So we had a very close entanglement on the know-how basis, on the customer basis, and also on the future business basis. Mm -hmm. And they got to know us, they went to the board, they basically tested us out for 18 months, and then suddenly they came like more or less by surprise, like, now we have to buy you. It was like, without <laughs> discussion, like they said, now it's time, now we, <laughs> they have to buy us. Do you know and what, what triggered? We're not in a hurry because everything works so well. We like yeah. increasing more customers, were even profitable at the time. We didn't need yeah. more money, which was very bad for them. So they couldn't just say, you need our money, that's why, why we can make the rules. So we could make the rules. But we knew it nice. would be a perfect fit because, because they had a much larger customer base. Um, they could monetize uh, what they bought quite well. That's also why they could pay a little more. And then we said two times no for the offer, and the third time the offer was so good that nobody refused anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, okay, if you don't, don't sell now, we would be really stupid. And also the team said they want to continue even after selling it uh, mm -hmm. because they want to show that when they integrate with the larger corporate that it still works uh, as they had intended. Yeah. And then they continued for another two years um, to really make it great. Nice. It was a good exit for both sides. I mean, both got a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. And when you took them on as Series A investor, were there already any plans to potentially exit to them later on? Or what was the rationale behind it for the Series A investment? I mean, we wanted to make sure that we have, have options. Uh, I mean, some startups are a little bit naive that uh, when they make a term sheet and then investors says they want very special rights for the next round or so, uh, that they would give them more or less the full rights. 
And uh, I mean, of course, um, that acquirer also asks for special rights, because you can have them, but in a very limited time window. Like if you do a next round, you have a very limited time to say if, if you come or not, and if not, we can do whatever we want. Right. And uh, we already knew that from others, which you know, made the mistake that they basically would be yeah, just having one partner and the partner more or less would make the rules. And if he was not happy, then the rule wouldn't happen. And uh, we didn't want that. So we said, even if they will not do the round, we can still do it with somebody else. And then they couldn't block it anymore. Uh, so you should never give um, stupid veto rights uh, to your first investor. Uh, because otherwise, later on, you're very restricted in, in what you can do with uh, additional investors or not. Right. So I think that's a good uh, takeaway, you know, for founders thinking about Series A investments to really focus on these terms and making sure that you don't block your future uh, Keep investment Keep your options rounds. open, always, yeah, yes. Absolutely. Especially for bigger rounds. We didn't know whether we want to do much more uh, like new rounds and get sizable money and really like become global or whether we would sell early. Mm -hmm. And as I said, it was by surprise. We, we didn't have to sell. We didn't have to take more money because, as I said, we were profitable. We could just decide how much we would reinvest for more growth uh, versus uh, less growth. And then we could balance the profits versus growth. And so it was a very comfortable situation. And if you don't have to sell, you can much better negotiate than if you run out of money and you have sure. to decide immediately. Yeah. I think there's a saying, whoever wants to deal less uh, has the better cards at hand, right? And if you're profitable, you can basically go on forever. You don't need to have a deal. Yeah, don't, don't need to hurry, yeah. Right. Were there also any aspirations to go international with Conta Vista? I mean, we already had um, two customers from two other countries, okay. uh, which we were in very close discussion. One was almost um, signed. Uh, so we knew we could sell it to, to Germany and Austria as well. And, and of course, I mean, we could have then established subsidiaries uh, at other places uh, if we wanted to. It was just a little bit too early to decide that because first we said we want to focus on the Swiss market to become the market leader here. Mm -hmm. If we went too early to uh, other places, chances would be that uh, maybe in Switzerland, the two other competitors, if they go to B2B, they will maybe take over the rest of the customers. Yeah. And we said we want to have a really strong home base before we do experiments abroad. That's why I basically got delayed and then suddenly there was this exit offer and then we said, okay, now it's a strategy of the buyer. <laughs> what happens next? True. No longer of Conta uh, Vista's core team. You said that the price was just too good to ignore and to say no to. What were other reasons that led you to actually sell the company besides the price? I think in the end, the founders always wanted to build something sustainable. So you build it and then you want to make sure that it stays there for, for longer because they also felt the service uh, is very useful to themselves. Also, I'm also a user of that service of Conta Vista uh, through the banks that I'm a customer of. So for me, it would also be, have been a disaster if somebody just bought basically the core and then they would stop this offering and use it for something different. So for us, it was important that it would continue. And uh, this exit was one way of making sure it would continue. On the other side, I mean, if you have the chance after less than five years to sell it, then you have many more opportunities afterwards. And the founders had tons of ideas what else they could do in life. Yeah. Also other startup ideas. And they said, look, now if you have the firing power, we could become investors. And actually all of the founders became also angel investors after the exit. And, and for me, I mean, I was an investor, I was in the board, I also felt it was a good fit, so why would I block it? Of course, they could have taken more money and made the thing much larger. Maybe they would have gotten even more, mm -hmm. uh, but it, com it comes with substantial risk. And at the same time, you need to add another five to 10 years to the journey. And then things are very different because you still have this, this huge risk with 
this one thing, and if it fails, you lose everything. True. And uh, maybe it's also more the Swiss attitude that you rather sell early than later. So many exits in Switzerland happen before you reach uh, the 100 million valuation mark. It's also the number of buyers are many more if you sell for, for less than 100 million and if you sell for more. And going on the stock market was not their ambition. Um, but so I think retrospect was good timing and the right moment. And uh, the price was really good enough that you couldn't say, um, oh, if you had waited two more years, then you would have a better deal with the same. Right. I, I don't think that would have worked out that well. Now, of course, everybody asked himself, what was the price for how much did he sell for? Yeah, I mean, we had these discussions, of course. I would love to make everything public, but uh, normally the acquirer doesn't want that because they need to justify to their shareholders why they pay a certain price. Uh, but they allowed us to um, make public the multiples of the investors. Okay. So those that invest in the very first time, it, it was possible for angels to invest. They got almost uh, 33 times uh, the money back. And then overall, there were several possibilities to invest. Like the, the, the very first uh, time, then there was in between the bridge round and then there was a Series A. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had invested in every time I could, uh, I invested something. And so overall, over my full investment, I got about eight times uh, the, the money back of the full investment I, I did. Nice. So that, that's quite good in four and a half years. It's more than a hundred, whatever, 30% interest rate per year if you had an account, a savings <laughs> account. <laughs> um, so yes, it was an excellent deal. It was also great for the Swiss startup scene because it shows you can build something from scratch and uh, within a reasonable amount of years, you can have first customers, first revenues become profitable and, and then actually sell the whole company. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a perfect blueprint how you can actually build and sell a successful startup in Switzerland. So yeah. that's a perfect story. Looking to learn for from. many more people that do the same. Blueprint. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> so then, you know, after uh, the Conta Vista exit, uh, you also got more and more tied up to this startup world and the startup game. You also founded the Business Angel Club SIGTIC, where you also invest, like you have an angel network there where you invest in, in companies. So can you talk a bit more about what your motivation was to actually then, you know, systemize that and have a, a business angel club uh, for, for startups in Switzerland? Yeah, so why would we build yet another angel investor club? <laughs> Good question. I mean, I was looking at uh, existing angel clubs and I didn't find anyone uh, which had a focus on technology-based companies. Many of the existing clubs, they would invest very broadly in different fields, also in life science, uh, like uh, medication treatment, whatever. Mm -hmm. Also outside of Switzerland, uh, some of the investments uh, in the rest of Europe. And as I said, if I want to be an active angel and want to work on basically software or hardware enabled companies or data driven companies, I don't want to have a lot of deal flow left and right of it, which I would anyway never really invest in. True. And that's why I said, I want to build a community of people which share the same interests. They believe in the future of technology to enable a lot of other things. And then really just look for those type of startups because they're very, very scalable. They don't need so much funding uh, to really implement the first ideas, especially nowadays with the cloud resources. You can, you can rent everything that you need. You don't need to have a data center. You can just rent whatever you need right. on the go. And I felt this, this doesn't exist. There's no club with a focus on, on, on software, hardware and data-driven startups. And then let's change it. So how do you then do that? What was like the, the key success factor to build a, a good angel club? Uh, I mean, I was looking at what is the business model of these clubs? How do they earn money? How do they become sustainable? What is the type of community that they attract? Mm -hmm. 
And uh, most angel clubs, they basically have a fee, um, some which uh, try to monetize further. Um, they have not just a flat fee, but they also monetize on each single deal. And I didn't really like that idea of the finder's fee, uh, because once you have that, what do you do with investors which come from outside the club? And then some clubs, they, they basically make it exclusive, so only their members are allowed to invest, but then you miss out on the amazing other investors because sure. they cannot invest or they need to pay fees and then they don't want to invest. And I said, look, doing a finder's fee restricts the startup from getting the best investors. That's why we do the service for the startup for free and we don't charge the investors when they invest, but we give them the platform mm -hmm. where they can learn how to become an angel investor and where they will find the deals. And they should earn money, the investors themselves, if they invest in the best deals. And the club should be a non-profit vehicle, like an association which has people that work pro bono, uh, at least the, the, the strategic functions, like the whole board. They shouldn't earn money because they should be wanting to help the ecosystem and they can invest, of course. And if they invest wisely, they see the best deal flow and they ultimately get it back a few years later. So I said it needs to be a non-profit organization and it needs to be such that everybody can invest, even people from outside the club. We will just make it more visible which deals are there and uh, we will make it faster to find investors uh, such that in the end it's the best possible matchmaking of founders and investors. Got it. So now, you know, after Google, after the first successful exits, after founding SigTick, what's next for, what's next for Thomas? What's next for me? I mean, currently I'm working a lot with my more than 20 portfolio companies. Uh, I've incorporated 10 companies so far. I'm going to incorporate two more companies later this year if it works out. So uh, I'll be looking after the very young ones at the same time as making sure that the bigger ones can grow further. I mean, for example, Frontify, which was also incorporated in 2013, has now about 130 employees. And we also have an office in New York um, and in Germany. Uh, so we want to grow this further because it's a, a really good product and uh, I, I see a lot of potential to make this even larger. So I try to make the good running startups um, larger and more international and uh, at the same time I try to help the, the founders to really start from scratch and build something great. Awesome. We're going to tackle how to become a business angel, a successful business angel in Switzerland in the second episode. So before we conclude that one, uh, one last question for you. Are there any additional resources or gadgets that you can recommend, like books, podcasts, blogs, or even tools like your smartphone, for example, that you use yourself on a regular basis? I mean, there's lots of tools out there, but they all have very specific purposes. I think in the end, it's important that you work very efficiently. I mean, what I like a lot is collaboration tools. For example, if you do um, together um, a project or if you uh, do due diligence on a startup together that you mm -hmm. don't send uh, emails or attachments back and forth, but you rather use a shared uh, collaborative solution, for example, Google Docs or Google Spreadsheets, uh, because there everybody has always the latest version and you see who did what and you don't need to ask where's the latest version. So I like these collaboration tools a lot, uh, mostly um, Google Spreadsheets and Docs because they're extremely efficient. That makes sense. And also uh, saying that as a former Googler, I think that's very authentic. <laughs> I mean, I used them already back then and I still use them a lot. And other people which don't know how it works, to, uh, you, how they can use collaborative tools, uh, they're amazed on the efficiency gains. Of course, there are other platforms. I mean, Microsoft also has uh, such tools, sure. but they're not yet on the level um, that, that they really allow collaboration very easily across borders. Got it. So thank you so much for sharing your story and the Contavista story, Thomas. And we are looking forward to hearing and seeing you again in the next episode. 
Thanks for interviewing. Have a good day. This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.